Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about dexterity games. We're talking about games where you have to be more than just good with your brain. You have to be good with your hands or maybe other parts of your body. Who knows what kind of game we're talking about as far as dexterity goes. But we're talking to Cody Stevens from Twin City Games. Cody, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man, I'm excited. you got a really interesting game, uh, one that I saw even before we talked, uh, the game called Dino Dunk. It was a very interesting kind of sports-themed dexterity game. And so I'm excited to kind of talk to you about that. But just in case people haven't heard of you, hadn't heard of your game, uh, who are you? How'd you get into game design, all that good stuff? Uh, well, my name is Cody Stevens. I uh, started Twin City Games out of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Um, I got into board games when I was in college. Me and my roommates, we played Summoner Wars uh, by Plat Hat Games. Uh, played a ton of Summoner Wars. Uh, we ended up becoming playtesters uh, while we all lived together. And from there, I just started volunteering with them, uh, going to conventions, demoing their games, selling them. And I just really enjoy that aspect of the board game industry. So I kind of want to just do it myself. Gotcha. Now, how long have you been into this? Like, when did you get into Summoner Wars compared to, like, when you started designing games and all that? I uh, started playing Summoner Wars in 2010. And I went to Gen Con for the very first time in 2010, and I've been there probably every year since then, except for once. I've uh, been to Origins several times. I uh, was fortunate enough to go to Essen um, and check out Essen. So it's just been great. Yeah, awesome. And how long have you been actually like designing games? Uh, designing games, so this is the first game that I've fully designed. I've always had ideas for games, you know, but none of them ever really panned out. Uh, but this is the first one that... You know, I came up with the initial idea of, you know, just having this dexterity element, um, mapping the rules of basketball to it. And I really like the core, you know, mechanics of passing, shooting, scoring, everything like that was fine. And then the fun part was just mapping, you know, unique abilities to dinosaurs and how would a dinosaur play basketball. Yeah, you know, for sure. Stegosaurus, he's got spines so he can box people out. Uh, you know, your T-Rex, he's got tiny arms. He can't actually shoot the ball, so he's got to slam dunk it. Right, definitely. And I'm excited to talk to you about Dino Dunk and kind of how it came to be and how it works and all that in just a second. But first, so let's get just a good working definition. Like, if someone says dexterity game, what do they mean? Like, what does that mean exactly? So I can tell you, like, my thoughts. So, like, rolling dice is a dexterous activity. Okay, yeah. But that, that that's a dexterous activity, but it has a random element to it. Yeah. You know, you're not using it. You could roll a die and try and roll a six, and that's a dexterous element. But that's against the kind of nature of what a die is supposed to do. It's yeah. supposed to be a random number generator. So I guess the best way to describe what a dexterous element is is any just physical aspect where uh, the randomness it comes from your skill level as opposed to rolling a die. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it, because, I mean, there are lots of games that 
have certain elements about them that it's not really based on your dexterity. Like you're saying, rolling dice. And there's some people that really just can't roll dice. I have friends that we, we have to make them roll dice into a box because every time they roll dice, it just flies off the table. It's like, what are you doing? But that doesn't really like, factor into the game necessarily. But then there are certain games where your skill is directly proportional to like the game and how it is played. And so what are, what are some of your favorites? So, like Before we get into your, you know, and you can't say my game, but obviously. But like, what are some of your favorite dexterity games? Uh, I think some of my favorites are, so Catacombs is definitely one of them. Uh, I've really enjoyed uh, Flip Ships. Um, Rhino Hero is another really good one. Um, yeah, those are pretty much most of my favorites. Uh, I really enjoy games that have just a different activity within them. So Potion Explosion is not, you know, a dexterous game, but it has a different activity in pulling out marbles and collecting sets based on what you pull out. It's a very unique element that I think adds a lot to that game. Yeah, for sure. And I want to talk to you more about some of those games you just mentioned and kind of how they work. Because it's one thing that's interesting about dexterity games is there's a, a thousand different ways that you can you can do them. Like it's not just like one way. It's not just throwing stuff. It's not just sliding things. It's all sorts of different things. But let me first ask you why. Why in the world, of all the kind of games that you could make, why would you make a dexterity game? I think it just goes back to that same point. You know, uh, as a game buyer, when I'm buying a new game, I have deck builder games, I have area control games, I have dungeon crawlers, and everyone's trying to find a new unique element to have in their game. And I think dexterity games are really a gateway for that because those unique activities are the core mechanic of those games. And that's what makes them appealing. Yeah, for sure. And so what is it about these games that keep continue to draw people in? Because there's a lot of mass market dexterity games. Like it's not just hobby games. Like dexterity, if you think about Jenga, like I don't know who knows when Jenga was made a million years ago, but like it's been a crazy seller forever. And so, what is it about dexterity that just kind of draws people in the way that it does? Uh, yeah, Jenga, um, Operation Yeti Spaghetti. I just think it's just, uh, it's just quick, fun action. You know that people can they can visualize it. You know, when I present a card game to someone and say, this is the card game, these are what all the values on the cards do, and these are how they interact, it's a lot harder for people to visualize that. But if it's a dexterity game where I say, oh, you flick this piece, and wherever it lands, that's where it ends, and I can do that right in front of you, people then say, oh, that looks cool. Oh, you know, I can understand this, just because it has that visual appeal. Yeah, also I think the... The nature of these games makes it a little bit easier to explain, and like you don't have to have these like twenty-page rule books necessarily. Well, Catacombs might be an exception; they have a crazy amount of rules because yes. there's so many different yes, ways do. to flick things and all that. But we can talk about that in a minute. Yeah. But most time, dexterity games are a little bit easier to explain, which makes them a little easier to kind of draw new people in. Uh, it makes it easier to make make family games and all that kind of thing. And I also think that it's because the like my being able to be good at a game isn't necessarily based on my ability to understand the rules. It, it's a lot of times based on my ability to kind of be dexterous, so to speak, and, and use my my dexterity as, as you know, makes sense, uh, as opposed to like grasping the rules better than anybody else. It, it's kind of more on me as opposed to my understanding. I think that helps as well. Yeah. Now, is that something you found with with your own game? Is like people are able to kind of be drawn in, kind of because it's an easier like if I say, hey, let's play Agricola or let's play this this dexterity game. Like people are, obviously it's it's easier to get into a dexterity game, just the nature of it. And so it kind of tell walk walk me through what you found in your own experience. Uh, yeah, so the, pretty much the first thing that I tell people is, you know, uh, I have a lot of people who don't play hobby board games, and they say, oh, you designed a game, what's your game about? And I say, well, my game is Dino Dunk, and it's a game about dinosaurs playing basketball, but what's unique about it is that uh, instead of moving your 
player on spaces, like in Monopoly or Sorry, you flip them, and wherever they land on this board, that's where they end up. And that's usually the first thing that people say, oh, that's interesting. I've never seen something like that before. Mostly because they're not in, you know, the hobby tabletop game, uh, I guess, business or industry. Yeah, in the hobby. And I, I think, like kind of what you were saying a moment ago, visually it makes more sense to them. You don't have to say, yeah, you take five, a hand of five cards and you figure out this and you add these resources together and then you do this and you can draw two more or you can get rid of these cards. It's like, no, no, you flick it. You, you just flick it, and that's where your dinosaur is. And I think that kind of just might, makes it so much easier for people to understand. Yep, it's just, yeah, people can just visualize it, and they see exactly what they need to do to win. Yeah, definitely. Or to quantify success. Right, and it just kind of makes more sense in our, our uh, caveman brain, so to speak. And so, all right, walk me through a little bit more about Dino Dunk. Like, tell me, well, first of all, let's just start off, where did you get the idea? Like, where did the idea come from? And then walk me through how the game works. So I did not come up with the theme idea. That is my friend, Jay Key. He is pretty much my go-to man for coming up with themes, you know, or names for anything. He'll come to me and I'll say, hidden movement game, goats, climbing a mountain, going over bridges with trolls. It's called Snow Patrol game. (laughs) And so he had the game Dino Dunk with dinosaurs playing basketball. And I was at Origins 2016, and I was fortunate enough to pick up a copy of Catacombs. I'd really wanted to play it since the new edition came out. Yep. And we sat down, we played it, and I was like, oh, man, if you could just map the rules of basketball, you know, with this disc-flicking dexterity, that's, that's your game, you know. And so then I said, all right, let's take that. Let's take that core basketball disc-flicking, and then let's put that theme of dinosaurs playing basketball on top of it. Yeah, and so that's literally what you did. And so walk me through just kind of how the game works. You mentioned earlier that you flick your players to kind of move them around the court, but what are some of the other uh, mechanisms going on? Yeah, so the game is played on a neoprene mat, um, and so there are different areas of the mat. So your scoring zone is actually an active volcano. And so when you look at it, it's basically an aerial view of a basketball court. Uh, The scoring zone is the mouth of the volcano, and your three-point line is the base of the volcano, and it's just one visual, nice piece of artwork. And you score by flicking the ball token, which is about a quarter of an inch in diameter, and having that land over top of that goal. As long as any part of it lands over top of it, you score. And so on your turn, you get to activate two of your dinosaurs. Each dinosaur, they can either move, pass, shoot, or dunk. And so those are your four basic actions. Um, Dinosaurs come in different sizes. So your point guards, they're small. They're too small to shoot, so they can only move and pass. And then your large dinosaurs, uh, like I said, the T-Rex, he's got tiny arms, and he can't actually shoot, so he can only dunk it. And so you can dunk it. Instead of flicking the ball, you actually put the ball token on top of their piece, which is about an inch and a half in diameter, and you flick their piece. And as long as their token lands over top the goal, Without the top, without the ball token falling off the top of them, then they dunk it. Otherwise, if the ball token falls off, he drops it with his tiny arms. <laughs> right, which thematically makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and that was really the first core round. It's like, all right, you know, moving, passing, shooting, that all works. But that dunking mechanic where I said, okay, I put this ball token on top and I flick him, you know, and I get him to land over top, that was really the unique thing. I'm like, this is, like, when I explain dino dunk to people, this is what you know, they're going to say, wow, that looks cool, you know, and they're going to feel good when they actually perform that action. 
Right, definitely. This is something I want to talk about in a minute. But I think it works really well here. How do you measure like the amount of time? Like, how long does the game last? Because I feel like that's something a lot of dexterity games kind of struggle with. Is like, well, do you do a certain number of rounds? Do you a certain number of flicks? Like, how do you determine the the game length for your game? And that was something that uh, was one of the biggest struggles in the game. Is so the game ends when the first player scored six points. Um, the scoring. Uh, you could honestly choose whatever score you want to as your target. You could play up to 20 points. You could only play four points. Um, but really, it's just who can score six points first, who can score three times. So trying to figure out like how long a game should take should take between 30 and 40 minutes. And so then how can we get a score down You know, between five and eight minutes? And it's really just enabling people because it's very disheartening when you're playing for six minutes on offense and you know you go to shoot and it just turns out to be a loose ball you know what elements can you add to make it easier to score you know so that the offense is scoring more you know but not letting it overpower the defense so yeah it's ways of enabling scoring because like you said other dexterity games they do struggle to kind of set that time limit you know in a fair way yeah for sure now i think there's a number of dexterity games that do it in a really cool way. Jenga, when the tower falls, that's the game ending. Same with Rhino Hero and uh, you know, with Catacombs, like when I've killed all your the bad guys or the bad guys have killed me, the game ends. So I think there's certain there's certain ways to handle it, but I, I don't I'm trying to think if I've ever played a, a dexterity game that had like a actual time limit or like a number of rounds. I feel like it's almost always you have to you have to do a certain thing or a certain thing has to happen, like in your game. You have to score six points. Like first one to six wins. Like there's that might take that could take three days. Like if you have the worst, you know, if you're playing with my kids, because my kids are like dexterity is not their thing, man. They are just not old enough yet. And so we'd be playing for days. Um but but have you, did you try anything else as far as like other ways to do it that just didn't work? Oh yeah. We tried uh setting a number of turns. You know, there's only thirty turns in the game and then, you know, there, whenever a score comes, you know, you skip, you know, to the next, like, five. Uh, we did a lot of different just testing of, like, you know, it's hard to have, like, a sand timer and, you know, flip that over and see whoever scores. Because, you know, maybe you set this kind of timer on it and no one actually scores within that time limit. And then zero zero, and people just say, well, why did I play this game? Yeah, now we're playing soccer, so, dino soccer. Yeah, so our, <laughs> our best tactic was then to say, you know, while testing, okay, we need people to score. You know, scoring is what's fun about this game. You know, when you dunk it, when you shoot, you know, when you score, it's like, yes, I did something. And that's the experience that we want players to have. So how can we make scoring easier and more accessible? Yeah, for sure. And actually, it makes a lot of thematic sense. I was playing basketball with some friends yesterday, and it was first one to 11. First one to 11 wins. Yeah. And then, you know, it makes it very easy for us to kind of grasp and understand. You don't have to worry about a clock or number of possessions or anything like that, just whatever the score is. Yeah, and Flip Ships does it pretty well with their rounds because, you know, you're constantly drawing ships and trying to defend, you know, your city. And then once those ships are all destroyed, you have to take down the mothership, you know. And if you can't take down that mothership, you know, within one to two rounds, you know, you just lose the game. So that's one that really does have that hard set time limit, you know, saying, okay, you know, we're defeating all these little ships, but we also got to take down this mothership too. Otherwise, we're going to get to the end and we're going to have, you know, this mountain to climb. Yeah, for sure. And let's keep talking about flip ships. Let's talk about some other dexterity games and how they work differently and why they work, why they're so popular. Let's talk a little bit more about about flip ships. How does that one work? Uh, Flip ships is really good just because you get your launching platform and you're just flicking pogs and trying to get them to land on cards. Uh, I think it works really well because it's like Space Invaders. People recognize it and say, oh, I used to play Space Invaders. I kind of know what this game's going for. And, you know, and then they have a pretty sweet 3D mothership made out of uh, 
cardboard bits and you're just trying to flick pogs into that that's all the way down the table and so it's really fun it's cooperative it's one where a really good player can play with a player who's not so good and that really good player can carry them forward so something i really like about flip ships and why i think that game you know is really appealing to people and it has really good artwork yeah, the artwork's amazing for sure. That's something I saw at Origins last year. It was the first time I ever saw, or had ever seen it. And the artwork, I was like, what is this game? Oh, shoot, it's a dexterity game. And I just saw people playing it. Now, one thing that's different with it is you're actually, like, you're not flicking it. Because most game, most dexterity games, you kind of flick it, and it's really a slide. Like, the game, the uh, the tokens slide. With that one, they need to go in the air, right, to, to yep. do certain things. And so that kind of uh, sets it apart as well. And Nothing like you just mentioned. It's cooperative. There's not that many dexterity games that are that are co-op, um, which is kind of another interesting uh, way to do it. And so let's let's talk about some of these other ones. Let's talk uh, catacombs. We mentioned catacombs before. Tell me about that one. How does it work? Uh, catacombs is really good. So that's a dungeon crawler. It's basically a dungeon crawler that's mapped to uh, disc flicking, kind of as such. And so most of your attacking is done by flicking your hero into you know uh, the dungeon master's monsters. And once you clear all the monsters out of the floor, you get to go down to the next floor. And you progress, you know, some level of layers. And at the very end, there's a boss room where you have to take down the boss who's got, you know, several parts of health. And, you know, you have to all work together to try and uh, take down that boss monster. So it's another cooperative one. Um, it's very, uh, that one's much longer. You know, it's much longer playtime, a lot more setup involved in that one. Uh, but, yeah, that was really the first dexterity game that I played outside of the Jenga you know, operation family style games. Yeah, I'd say that was one of the, the first gamer versions of a dexterity game that really kind of took off. And even when it was ugly, talk about artwork, man, that game was so ugly when it first came out and it finally got a facelift and looks amazing now. But yeah, even even with kind of the ugly artwork, it still brought people in. Yeah, so I really, let, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that game. Uh, and that game, you know, I think that one really works just because the DM, they act like a DM in any sort of dungeon, you know, uh, any like RPG style tabletop. Uh, game you know they're trying to make it challenging for the players but it's not fun if they just destroy the players outright right. you know before they even make it to the boss so yeah. i think that's another really good one that kind of gauges that uh you know skill level may be dependent on new players versus old players first better players. yeah and you said it was co-op it, it's one versus many so like one side is cooperative and then the other other side has this one person who's being the uh, the the bad guy the ai um, one thing i love about that one is it has i don't know 100 150 i don't know different abilities and different people and different spells and different size tokens and, and this guy can move twice and this person can shoot these smaller tokens as like arrows or spells like there's so many different abilities and it really showcases the the, the opportunities a game has a dexterity game has to do more than just Flick the token, right? There's so much more to it. And like we said, there's like a 20-something page rule book because you have all these different abilities. Right. Yeah, and that's another, that's just something that really just adds replay value, you know, to Catacombs, you know, and makes it so that you're never really going to play the same game twice. Their latest Kickstarter, uh, you had like basically a full like carton box of just games and expansion characters and monsters, you know, everything. Yeah. So, super Definitely. cool. Now let's let's switch gears and let's talk about a, a slightly different dexterity style game, Rhino Hero. Tell me about that one. How does it work? Uh, Rhino Hero is it's a very simple game. It's by Haba. Uh, I love it. Uh, it's Jenga, but instead of deconstructing a tower, you're building a tower. So you know you have these folded cards, which I love that component. It's yeah. something that you know would I think really make some gamers hurt, but I just think it's so cool. You know that's like its unique element. And you build, you know, basically a floor out of two of those bent cards, and you put another floor tile up. 
And it's got some Uno elements of, you know, reversing play and, you know, playing a second card, skipping players' turns, making them draw new uh, roof cards. But yeah, in the end, you just want to be able to play all of your roof cards and get to the very top. And at some point, you know, you may have to place this little rhino meeple, you know, on one edge of the tower and hope that it doesn't fall over. Yeah, for sure. I think you brought up a good point. It's kind of like Uno and Jenga mixed together with with some other gamer style things in there. And it's one, it's a game that my kids love. Now we don't ever get past like the fourth or fifth story because you know they're children, and so it's kind of fun to see them in there and then their hands are shaking a little bit trying to figure out how am I going to place this thing. And it's just a really fun game that takes you know ten fifteen minutes. To play. I think that's another thing. Let's let's talk about the length of dexterity games real quick before we get into some of the other ones. What what is like the perfect length of a dexterity game? Do you think? Uh, I think the perfect length, the absolute, is fifteen to twenty minutes. Yeah. You know, something that's super quick. You know, you can play around. Uh, if it's something like Django where the tower is going to fall over, you know, one player gets out, everyone has fun. Oh, but can we play this right again? Can we right. play this right again? Uh, I don't know if you ever played Elkfest before. No. Uh, it's an old game by Mayfair. It's another one of my favorites. Uh, I probably lost that game four times in a row with the guy who owned it. And every single time, I mean, he was like, let's play again. Let's play again. Let's play again. Well, I was only over at his house for 30 minutes, you yeah. know, playing four to five games. And it's just so much fun. So, yeah, I think just having quick, you know, quick games like that, that people can just immediately replay is the best kind of option. Yeah, now let's get into the psychology of kind of why, why do you think that is? Why do you think a fairly quick game is a better dexterity game well in a lot of dexterity games you know you either succeed or fail based off of your skill level right so if you fail it's much better to you know be able to quickly reset you know and say okay i haven't been playing this game for four hours i haven't been playing dexterity twilight imperium you know for four hours (laughs) oh i made a mistake and now my entire you know civilization is ruined you know and i can't come back from this so you know if i can fail within five minutes and then immediately play again and succeed within five minutes and get better and get better and get better you know in one session uh that's i think where dexterity games shine yeah i completely agree and this kind of goes back to what richard garfield was talking about on the show a while back and he said you know there's there's definitely a ratio between the amount of luck in a game and how long the game should last and if there's more luck it should last less time and if you think about dexterity Unless you're like trying to go pro in Rhino Hero or trying to go pro in Catacombs, like you're like sitting there every day and you're practicing, like it, this is a lucky thing. Like you, you luckily, you know, flicked that token a certain way, or you luckily flipped flip the pog and flipped this. Like it's not something you're going to sit there and practice. Now there's some people who are crazy competitive, and you need anyway. Never mind. Neither here nor there. That's a whole other episode as far as that goes. But so most of the time, this is luck based. It's like, did you just luckily guess how much force to put into that token? And so there's a lot of luck going on, which Tends to make, tends to mean that a game needs to be a little bit shorter. Yeah, and so going back to Dino Dunk, you know, you can think of that game not as one whole, but as just individual possessions. Yeah. So I might play this possession for five minutes, and I might score, and that'll feel great, you know. And the defense will be like, "Oh, I didn't stop that." But then you know you reset, and then you know maybe the next time I do fail, I don't score. The defense steals it, and they take it back. And I said, "Oh, you know." That was bad, but next possession, I'm going to get it back, and I'm going to score again. And you get those; you still get that psychology of, okay, quick reset. Let's try something different this time. You know, let's run a different play, uh, and let's you know try and get a little bit closer to scoring. And then it's like real basketball because you know defense is always trying to capitalize on the offense's mistakes, yeah. and it's whoever can just make less mistakes over time, you know, is going to be the one who wins. 
Yeah, definitely. Now let's talk about a, another just different kind of dexterity game, one that you I mentioned before the show you got to play here recently. It's Fireball Island. Tell me about that one. Fireball Island's super cool. Uh, I would consider that more of a game that's not really dexterous. It's just a game that has dexterity elements into it. Yeah. So you're playing cards and moving your piece around this board, you know, and other players are playing cards that might let them flick marbles down these chutes and knock over your player piece. Uh, it's very cool. And you're also, you know, dropping marbles down a car and marbles are rolling, you know, in every which direction. And you're just praying that your piece doesn't get knocked down and get dragged, you know, across the board into some spot that you do not want. And so that's really cool. And what's really interesting about that game is uh, me having some experience with dexterity games. Within the first round, I probably knocked over uh, or within the first two rounds, I probably knocked over all three of the other players and they all immediately tried to gang up on me. Right. And you can't tip your hand too early. <laughs> there's a crouching tiger that you can kind of flick like a paper football, you know, that springs, mm-hmm. you know, towards you from off the map. And if it knocks over your player, you know, you lose some treasure. Uh, and I'm pretty sure my guy had that tiger, you know, uh, sprung on him at least five times. And he dodged it every time, but it was always nerve wracking. Like, <laughs> oh, like, you know, are they actually going to get me this time? So that's another one where it's like, those little dexterous elements really add a lot of fun to the game, you know, that otherwise would just be playing cards, moving, collecting treasure. Yeah, and like you said, it brings more drama. It brings a little bit of that kind of random nature where somebody's not playing a card and saying, hey, uh, your guy fell down and now give me a treasure. Like, no, they have to kind of earn it, you know. And now it does reward more skilled play. It rewards older players that kind of have more control of their dexterism, dexterous, dexterosity. We'll yep. go with dexterosity. We'll tell you, say that and we'll make up words here. And But it, it makes a good point that, a game doesn't have to be straight up dexterity. Like you can have dex- dexterous elements in a game and kind of create some really cool moments. There was a, a zombie game I played forever ago, and the game was not that good, but it had a really interesting dexterity element where it's like the main part of the game was you're building up this this house, this stronghold, and you're trying to like get weapons and barricades, and you're trying to last longer than everybody else. Like everybody's gonna die, but you're trying to be the last one basically. And the way you killed zombies in that game, the top of the box had a zombie in it, just printed inside, and it had a big circle around the zombie's head, and when you're trying to kill a zombie, you would throw dice into the top of the box and try to land them inside that circle, and so like the better weapon you had, the more dice you could throw, and and so it created this really interesting dramatic moment, where it wasn't like, oh, I've got an AK-47, okay, I killed three three zombies. Like, no, I have an AK-47, I get three dice, and I get three throws into the box, and it created this like really cool, tense moment in the game whenever that happened, and so it's just interesting how you can kind of add dexterity elements into a game to kind of change it up a little bit yeah that sounds like an awesome mechanic and i also love it when publishers basically use the box also in the game of some way shape or form just anywhere where you can get the most value out of the components you know within the box itself yeah definitely and you know the designers could have taken the easy way out and saying yeah okay you you use this gun it kills two zombies but they were like no no we want to do something a little bit more fun and that which was a good idea because that was the best part of the game <laughs> like the rest of the game was fine it was mediocre at best but that part of the game was really fun and think about that like that that i feel like that me- mechanism needs to be in another game like someone if you're listening to this think through like how you could add that kind of mechanism into your game to use the box use flicking dice or, or tokens or something like that to make some dramatic uh, moments. Now, are there any other dexterity games that kind of come to mind that are different than the ones we've talked about that are interesting that need to be discussed? Uh, I can't really think of any off of the top of my head right now. Those are really my favorites. Yeah, um, yeah I'm glad I got to bring up Elkfest because that is an amazing game. Well, tell me, you didn't tell me about how it works, though. Like, how does that game play? Oh, that game is uh, very simple. So you have, there are two moose, uh, elk. It's a German translation. 
uh, and you basically have a starting platform. Each moose starts on a starting platform that's on opposite sides of this river, and you're just trying to get your moose to the other player's platform. And the way you do that is you have three stones, each player's three stones, and you just flick these on uh, any table surface, and your moose moves if the distance between the stone that they're on you know, and the stone that they're moving to, if they can straddle that. So there's basically like an inch and a half gap between their two legs, and you just have to balance them. And uh, if you fall off those stones, you become a wet moose, and you have to go back to, you know, your previous position. So you're just inching your way across this uh, river. It's really cool. Gotcha. It actually reminds me of a game I played forever ago. I think it's called Don't Break the Ice, where you had this little hammer, and you're breaking like the little, uh, you've got like a board that's all these cubes, these like white transparent kind of cubes that are all set together and they're all the reason they stick together is because of the way you know fi- the way physics works and you're trying to remove uh, cubes and like you don't want to be the one that makes the whole thing fall and so one thing i mm-hmm. think is interesting about these games even the mass market ones is that they teach kids about physics in a lot of ways like they, they teach kids like how things work like even with jenga like you learn okay not every single uh, block in this thing is actually structurally necessary and it's teaching you a lot of very interesting things and so i feel like dexterity games lend themselves to kids and families just because of the ease of like you don't have to teach a lot of rules it's kind of simple but also it teaches a lot of very interesting life skills that you know a kid playing jenga might go i want to be an engineer one day because this stuff's cool you know he might see something on the front end that, that turns into some kind of career on the back end yep and another game i don't know if you've seen this one this is something i saw on, on board game geek i don't know a month ago something like that called seal team flicks kind of based off seal team six but seal team flicks and if i remember right it had a bunch of cards and this one was timed. I can't remember how they did it, but it had like a timed element. And you would have to flick tokens to land on these cards. And let's say you're trying to defuse a bomb. Well, it would have like two or three different spots, kind of like your, your volcano, like the, the token has to land in that spot. And so because mm-hmm. it's timed, like you're really having to, to, to pace yourself. Like you have to do it fast enough to get it done, but you won't do it too fast because you want to you know, do quality. And so, but you'd have to flick these tokens. And you're trying to land it on the right places to defuse the bomb or put in numbers for a key code or something like that. And it was just interesting how they kind of added the timed element in there that kind of makes more stress and more drama. But uh, that was another really interesting way to do it. That sounds pretty cool. I'll have to check that one out. I didn't see that one yeah. uh, on BGG yet, but... That sounds really cool. Yeah, I'll go back. I'll, I'll find the link. I don't think it's come out yet. I think it was like in production or in development or something like that, but it just seemed like a really cool idea. Uh, and I was like, man, I wish I wish there were other games with other themes or you know different kind of things that were, were using this style of mechanism. All right, let's go into kind of more general basics of things. You, you said that your game has a neoprene mat. Did you try to use other styles? Did you use the game board? I think Catacombs uses like a normal kind of card, cardboard, cardstock game board. Like, why did you, why did you choose neoprene? Uh, yeah, so one of the um, that's one of the first things that honestly changed uh, about the game. So first surface I used, first prototype I made was just cardstock, you know, just having it. Uh, the problem with catacombs was is the that box, the original box, they shortened it down, but the box that the version I bought is massive. Yeah, and you have these massive boards that you have to fold and unfold, and I really just did not like the crease, you know, in you know those boards. You know, when you unfold it, and if I was going to have a smaller box, I didn't also want to fold it four times, yeah. you know, create a quad fold board. And so I looked at, you know, the mats that I had from card games, and I was like, oh, you know, this seems about the same size, you know, 13 and a half inches, two feet. Um, let's, let me just buy a blank one. So I bought a blank white one and drew, you know, 
my port on it and tried flicking the discs and it creates a great resistance, you know, to those wooden discs so that you're not just flicking your pieces wildly off the board. Cause that's another thing that happened with catacombs, you know, a lot is pieces fly off the board. They have an entire barrier just to, just to prevent tokens from flying everywhere. So, and I came with that idea, and then immediately every dexterity game started also coming out with neoprene mats. So <laughs> right. it seemed like it was, I feel like I was following the right direction. Yeah, definitely. And that's the one thing about catacombs. The first 10 minutes of play is you figuring out how hard you can't flick it without it just going off the, off the board. Yeah, and what's unique about this neoprene mat is actually double-sided. So uh, there's artwork on both sides, yeah. um, and this is the first neoprene mat that Panda Game Manufacturing's made that actually has uh, that kind of belt side on both layers. Yeah, and now is, is one one side a different court? Like, did you change up the way it's set up and all that? Yep, so there's two teams, the Triassic Tropics and uh, the Mesozoic Meteors, and so uh, there's a nice jungle turf. It's got a nice flowing river and everything, and it's green and lush, and it's called Tropic Turf. And then the opposite side is your doom and gloom. The volcanoes are erupting, dinosaur bones, and that's called Crater Court. And the gameplay difference between those two are the actual goal sizes. So gotcha. on the tropic turf, the goal size is an inch and a half in diameter, and then it's a little bit more difficult on crater court because they're an inch and a quarter in diameter. Gotcha. So you can actually kind of increase the difficulty of the game. So if you have players that are better at this that aren't kids, that have like a little more dexterousness, dexterosity to them, then you can kind of make the difficulty harder. Yep, and that's another element that was, you know, while testing the game and saying, okay, what's too easy? What's too hard? You know, are people going to score all the time if it's inch and a half? Are people not going to score if it's an inch and a quarter? You know, what's the right size? And, you know, the answer is just let players choose. Yeah. You know, like I'm going to try and get the most bang out of this neoprene mat. I would just make two courts, you know, because I love double-sided boards in games. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, if a board has a black side on it, I'm like, ah, that's missed opportunity right you know just to have some variability in gameplay yeah for so. sure now does your neoprene mat kind of like roll up and go into the game box or how did you package it in there yeah so you know eliminating the creases using the neoprene mat it's actually rolled so it fits diagonally in the square box and the insert is actually a pressed um guess plastic and the mat just rolls up and it fits nice you know, and curved in that curved little slot. Gotcha. Now, as far as like a cost difference, did you did you price out the difference between using a board like Catacombs compared to the neoprene? And like which one, if you did, which one's more expensive? Uh, no, I didn't price out the cardboard because that was really, um, the neoprene was a solution for, you yeah. know, just eliminating the creases. Uh, I costed doing two separate mats, you know, having rubber on bottom and then having two separate quartz versus having both felt on both sides. And that was just overall cheaper. And then having the press uh, insert, you know, putting in this diagonal box, that was another really key thing. So what we originally were going to do is have a larger box and, you know, have the mat just fit in, you know, along one edge. Uh, talk to some people, some retailers, and they go, this game won't sell at retail because it's not a standard size box. Right. You know, you really need to fit this in a 295 by 295 box. Can you do it? And, you know, we just dumped out a game, rolled it up diagonally put it in there and said, yep, it fits. <laughs> and so then talk to the manufacturer, they go, yep, we can just press, you know, an insert, make it fit. And so it was a really good 
team effort to get it set up like that. Yeah, and that's a great point that, that you bring up, that you, you can't just make a good game. you got to make a good product. And so you have to think through, are retailers going to buy this? Are distributors going to buy it? How's it going to fit as far as the pallets when they're shipping it and on the containers and all that? There's so many things to think about when you're publishing a game, more than just making a good game. And with these kind of games that have maybe some different style components, a different style of board, something like that, it's something so important to think about on the front end as opposed to not having your game sell at retail on the back end and you didn't, you didn't know that that was going to be the case. And so, yeah, that's a really... A really good point there. Now, one thing I love about catacombs is the the ability for the boards because they have kind of the die cuts and you can kind of put obstacles on those on those boards. And so you're you're running into things, and you're able to bounce off stuff, and you can kind of use you know strategically shoot stuff different times, kind of ricochet and use that to your advantage. Is that something you tried to do with with your game? Is like having obstacles on the court and, and all that? Uh, no, I didn't really try to do anything like that because on one foot by two, so you have about ten discs, you know, on. Uh, on this map that are moving around and bumping into each other, adding any other type of obstacles really just makes it a little bit busier, you yeah. know? And I'm not really trying to hinder people from moving down the court, moving back, you know, defense, you know, it's really, you're the, that's the defense's job, yeah. you know, to have their pieces be, and going back to your comment about physics, you know, you can have a big dinosaur, big disc, crush a smaller disc and just really make it fly. Or you can put your big guy right there in front of the goal, and any of those smaller discs that try and hit them, they're not really going to move them too far. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the defense is creating those obstacles. Yeah, that's a real good point. Now, do you know with the neoprene, could you even do a die cut kind of thing? Is that even possible? Like, is Panda even able to kind of manage that? Uh, I have no idea. Uh, What I learned, though, from working with Panda is they are willing to try anything. Yeah, they'll figure it out. This is the first time that they've done a double-sided neoprene mat, and... You know, if you have an idea, they'll say, we'll try it. You know, we'll see if this works. Yeah, for sure. Because it'd be really cool to kind of have that catacomb style where you've got the holes where you, where you put the shapes, but it'd also be a neoprene mat just for the advantage that, that you get with that. So if you're listening to this, uh, somebody try that. Give that a shot. Call Brent over at uh, Panda. He's, he's my guy. That's, that's my friend over at Panda. He's a cool dude. And uh, he'll, he'll figure it out, man. That guy is like, I've never, he, he's kind of like with improv. One of the first rules of improv is yes and. And so like anybody, you know, they throw something at you, at you, you go, yes, and, and then you add more to it. And I feel like that's what Panda is. You, you throw them some idea, some challenge, they're like, yes, and, and they, they figure out a, a way to do it. Yeah, I, uh, I love working with Panda. I think they were great. Yeah. All right, now let's talk about your playtesting process. Because, you know, playtesting a dexterity game is very different than playtesting a Euro game or a card game or anything like that. So kind of tell me how, uh, how you set up your system, your playtest sessions. What did that look like? So for playtesting, uh, most of it had to be local playtesting. Um, a majority of it was just, you know, uh, my lead playtester, Evan, would come over and we say, hey, we're trying out this guy today. We're trying out this guy today. We'd make some notes, you know, we'd post some changes. And then the real big blind playtesting was taking that prototype, because I can't just create cards, you know, on a PDF and send those to people and have them print out and play it. You know, I've drawn this specific map on my mat, you know, and have these specific wooden tokens, you know, that I know how they function. I can't expect anyone just to make those. So the real playtesting then would come in at different conventions. So taking it to Origins Game Fair, taking it to BGGCon, taking it to Gen Con, and just showing people, you know, hey, check out this game. What do you think? You know, and just running demos there and saying, hey, this is, you know, this is Dino Dunk, you know, what are your thoughts? And just getting feedback from there. And I think that's honestly, you know, the best way, you know, instead of having 20 people, you know, maybe play the game like 20, 30 times, you know, each and giving their feedback, just getting new perspectives on it. 
So then after going to these shows, coming back and saying, okay, this is the feedback I got, you know, let's reiterate on this, you know, for another two months until we go to the next show and say, all right, this is our new version. What do you think of this? You know, and just trying new things. And that's something that I think Fireball Island, you know, really did very well because yeah. they just had their one prototype. They, you can't really send, you know, multiple out to people and say, hey, just keep trying this. Uh, they, they had an entire month that they toured around and like got feedback from people and saying, hey, you know, this is what's working. This is not what's working. So I think that's something that, you know, dexterity games kind of have to do. Yeah, for sure. Now, did you test your game with like different age groups and different ability levels? Uh, yep, I definitely played with uh, older, you know, like older gamers, gamers who had kids, you know, gamers uh, who are in their mid-20s, you know, who aren't married. Um, and then Origins, one of the biggest feedbacks I got was from um, one guy who he played it, and he's like, this is a good game. My kid is not going to be able to play this game. Right. And so, you know, you show the game to kids, and, you know, they're not interested about the variable player powers, you know, you know, the strategic elements necessarily, you know, what I learned is they just say, I like these dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. I want to play with these dinosaurs. And that's all they want to do. So I created a secondary game mode. It's called Exhibition Mode, where it basically eliminates the player powers and it kind of teaches the game's mechanics. So, you know, your large dinosaurs, uh, they basically dunk, you know, as their, like, scoring action in the main game. That's all they do in the base game. And on their card, it just has a description of how you dunk the ball. Because that's, you know, really what a kid wants to do is mm -hmm. they want that instant gratification and parents, they want to see their kid succeed, you know, in doing those actions, you know, because it's not super competitive when you're playing with, you know, a seven or nine year old. Right. Unless you're in my house, yeah. man, I, I, I'm crushing my kids. Like I'm teaching them how to lose. <laughs> like you, you will lose and you will figure out like how to deal with that. No, but that's exactly what you're saying. And I think that's something for, man, a lot of games to think about, not just dexterity, but have some kind of basic version in there for families, for kids, or just for people that maybe, maybe for whatever reason, they need that basic version to kind of learn the game. I mean, we, I had an episode a while back talking about accessibility. There's a million different reasons that a game might not be, be super accessible, not just because you're nine, right? There's a whole, you know, other list of reasons. And so just having that basic version to teach the core mechanics or for younger players to play, I think is so important in the kind of uh, multi, I don't want to say multicultural, but like multi-generational uh, age that we're in now where you have so many different gamers and so many different age groups, so many different levels of accessibility. Yeah, and so, yeah, so the game comes with 10 dinosaurs. Um, there are two point guards, there are two centers, and then there are six guards. And so when you build your team, you need one point guard, so one small disc, you need one center, one large disc, and then you just need three of the medium discs. And that exhibition mode just simplifies those powers so that all characters of the same size have the same power. So you only have three different powers to worry about. Yeah. And then, you know, the kids, they just say, I want the Stegosaurus, I want the Ankylosaurus, and I want the Spinosaurus, mm -hmm. you know, on my team. Right. I want the cool-looking dinosaurs on my team, basically. That's what, that's what I found. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a great way to, to do it and a great way to handle that kind of a mode for gameplay. Now, what advice would you give somebody that's working on a dexterity game or they're listening to this, like, oh, I could make one of those? Like, what, what would you tell them? Uh, I would just say really try and find a game that has dexterous elements, you know, in it, you know, that has maybe components that you can use because those are what manufactured components look like. Mm. Uh, so the catacombs discs that wood, you know, uh, you might not know where it was manufactured, but you say, okay, this is kind of the quality of wood, you know, or, you know, you grab some houses from Settlers of Catan, you know, and say, all right, I need cubes. You know, this is the kind of wood that's used in manufacturing. 
don't go out and buy plywood, you know, or, you know, some sort of pine. Because when you talk to a game manufacturer, they're not going to say, well, you don't get to choose, you know. Yeah. You're just going to get, you know, whatever the cheapest one we can do is. You know, if you want to use plastics, try and find plastics from another game, you know, use those. With this, your your components really need to match, you know, what you want your final components to look like. So you really do kind of, uh, if you're unable to make them yourself, you're unable to 3D print them or laser cut them, you need to just kind of salvage them from other games. Yeah, that's a great point. I actually, in any time I'm making a new game, I go in the Game Crafter and see what components are available there. Because that kind of gives you an idea of what the industry standard is, whether it's the size of the components or the quality of them or whatever they're made of that you know that kind of whatever kind of wood they use for cubes and this and all that and it just gives you an idea that way you're not straying too far left or right you kind of have an idea uh, of what of what manufacturers and, and printers are going to be using which saves you a lot of money because you try to do something different it's going to cost you a lot of money in the long run if you're trying to publish this yourself and also if you're trying to get it published through a, just a uh, an already established company, you're, you're not trying to do your own thing, you need to go to them and say, hey, here's the components. These are normal things. Because the more abnormal things you have in there, the harder it is to get a game published. Exactly. Yeah. Now, any other thoughts on dexterity games as far as like more of the mechanism style? So that was really good advice for like the components, but any any ideas as far as the, or advice as far as the mechanisms? Uh, not really. I mean, just like in any other, you know, design, you know, if you're making a card game, you're trying to make it unique, you know, just trying to find a unique element that, you know, is dexterous. You know, the rolling dice into the box, you know, that's really unique, you know, but that's already an action people are, you know, aware of. Like, oh, yeah, I can roll dice, but now where they land, that's what matters. Yeah. So uh, I think it's still the same thought process of saying, okay, what's going to make this different? Mm -hmm. You know, like, what element are people going to say, wow, this is really something that, like, I need to do? Yeah, definitely. I don't don't think going out and making the uh, medieval fantasy version of flip ships is the way to go. I mean, maybe there, maybe there's money in that, but I feel like flip ships is already a thing. Like how can you make flip ships different? How can you make a uh, fireball Island or catacombs? How could you do something similar, but different to the point where someone says, yes, I also need this game. Cause there's so many games out there. If you're not doing something pretty different, people say, we well, already have that. It, it's a little different, but I already have that. It already scratches that same itch, so to speak. Well, Cody, man, really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the show. We're about to head over into a bonus round. We're going to talk about volunteering for a publisher at a convention. That's how Cody got into gaming, uh, the gaming industry. And so he's got some really interesting advice on how to do that, how to get involved, how to kind of get into that situation, that scenario, scenario, and how to uh, go from there, what, what, what it looks like after you kind of get into the industry from that angle. So uh, we're going to do that over in the bonus round. But, Cody, again. Good luck with Dino Island. When is uh, Dino Island? Dino Island. There you go. The next Fireball <laughs> Island uh, expansion, Dino Island. Dino Dunk. When does it come out? Uh, it comes out at Origins Game Fair this June. So we'll be at booth 131 if you want to pick up your copy. Excellent. So if you're at Origins, check that out. And I'm sure it'll be available uh, online shortly after that, right? Correct. Very cool. Well, man, yeah, again, thanks for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. And good luck with everything you got going on right now. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?